welcome to Life with Ed, the podcast. I'm Julia Wirth, your host of Registered Dietitian in New Haven, Connecticut. And I'm really excited today to welcome you back to um, our second season and the second series and the second episode of that series. So two, two, two today. Um, And I'm one day late on posting. So sorry about that. But here we are on Thursday, April 28th. And I'm very annoyed that it's so cold outside. So for any of you that don't live in New England, I'm jealous. Um, But that's okay. Uh, We have a really great show for you. And it's with um, a therapist or a counselor uh, from the Renfrew Center. She is going to talk with me about how the inpatient or the residential, the partial hospitalization, those higher level of care settings really work, what they're like, because I always feel like we always just say, oh, go to higher level of care, go to residential, and no one really knows what it's like unless they've been there or they've worked there. And um, I think she has some really interesting information about what it is like, who it's appropriate for, right? And what are some of the indicators that it might not be appropriate? There are huge pros and huge cons to congregate settings for eating disorders. Um, Obviously, eating disorders can be sort of contagious. Behaviors can be contagious. So sometimes we worry about that happening in the congregate setting. And other times we worry that patients don't do well when they discharge so that, yes, maybe they're recovered and their weight restored at the setting at Renfrew or Walden or Center for Discovery, any one of the um, eating disorder treatment centers. But then when they discharge, what happens? Um, But obviously, treatment can play a huge role in benefiting people and helping them get towards a place of recovery. So today we're deep diving on what it's really like Before we do get started, I just wanted to remind everyone that if you're interested in becoming a patient, you can check out Worth Your Wild, W-E-R-T-H, yourwild.com, book an intro call or an appointment with me there. Or if you're interested in any of our parent programming or the Complete Parent Support course, those are also available on our website, so please check them out. We've had tons of great reviews and people find that they are um, really helpful, either the course itself or the parent sessions on Wednesday nights. So please um, check out what our spring offerings are. Just last night, we had an awesome session with a run coach talking about what um, sports and coaching can really mean in terms of eating disorder treatment, triggers, and all of that. So we have a lot more great sessions like that coming up this spring. So if you're interested, if you're a parent, check all that out again at worth, W-E-R-T-H, yourwild.com. And now, before anything else, (laughs) we're going to get to the show. Hi, Fatima. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you for joining me. Um, I'm very excited. I've wanted to have someone from the Renfrew Center join me for a long time. Um, You guys are so busy. It's hard to. Um, So could you just introduce yourself so my guests know who you are? Yeah, of course. Um, So my name is Fatima. Um, I am a primary therapist at the Renfrew Center of of White Plains. Um, So I work primarily with the PHP and the IOP programs. Mm -hmm. And PHP and IOP and White Plains are all remote still, right? Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Um, All of our New York City programming right now is virtual. 
Mm-hmm. Sorry, and New York City you, and White Plains. <laughs> yeah. Have you worked in the um, in-person setting ever or has it always been remote for you? Um, I've Renfrew. worked in person, but not at Renfrew. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. It's yeah. such a difference. Um, but I feel like so used to the remote that it's hard to remember <laughs> the yeah. other. It was hard to adjust to, but I feel like now it's sort of become the norm. Um, and I think that virtual programming has been like pretty effective in a way that I think has been really cool to see. Mm -hmm. We'll definitely talk about that more, but, um, I just wanted to start because I, a lot of parents listen to this Mm -hmm. podcast, parents of children or spouses of individuals with eating disorders and, um, you know, people are always nervous before making the decision to either have their child go to um, treatment of any kind, you know, IOP, PHP, right. or residential. Um, and they really are wondering, like, what is it like in reality? Not just like, oh, they go to sessions all day, but what is it? What is it like on the inside? What do they? What does their day look like? I wonder if you could break that down, at least at Renfrew for us. Yeah. Well, of course, residential treatment is going to vary across the different treatment centers. Um, I think some of the commonalities across treatment centers is that they are 24-7 care facilities. So there is access to both medical and clinical staff at all times. Um, So with residential treatment, what the day usually looks like is, you know, in the morning, there's going to be time to have medications. um, And then there's going to be three meals that are occurring throughout the day with meal support. Mm -hmm. So there's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then there's also snack time for those who have snacks kind of built into their meal plan. Um, After mealtimes, there's usually time to kind of reflect on the process of the meal, Mm -hmm. um, any triggers that may have came up, any um, things that you feel like you were able to work through or conquer. So there's always kind of that space to reflect on the relationship with the food that arises during those meals. Um, then there's going to be multiple different, in, um, group therapies that are scheduled throughout the day. Um, one of the main kind of models that we use at Renfrew is called the universal trans diagnostic model, which stands for UT. Um, so it was developed with researchers based in Boston many, many years ago, because Renfrew really wanted to find a model that, um, was effective that we could see really led to improvements in the eating disorder symptoms. Um, we found that the model worked Yeah. Uh, really what this, um, model targets is the underlying emotion dysregulation, um, that kind of accompanies eating disorders. And it also focuses on skill building. Um, and so what we find is that that model not only helps with the eating disorder symptoms, but also helps with depression and anxiety, um, which is what a a lot of folks who have eating disorders also struggle with. And so every single day, there's going to be what we call a UT group that kind of runs through what this model is um, and really works on that skill building and that insight building. Um, Outside of that, um, groups are kind of tailored to individual people's needs. So there's often like options, right? So um, for example, like if you're an adult um, and you identify as being like age 30 or above, there's going to be kind of a breakout group for adults. Sometimes there's arts groups, there's psychodrama. Um, so there is like flexibility within the like group programming to be able mm-hmm. to kind of choose things that really align with what you feel like works for you and also what your needs are. 
Um, for adolescents specifically, we also build in um, educational time. So there's an educational liaison at our residential site who works with the schools to really um, determine what accommodations are needed, any medical leaves. Um, there's a computer lab where there's you know, access for students to be able to work on their schoolwork. Um, because we understand that, right? Yeah. Like if you wanna do treatment, sometimes it's hard to put everything on hold. And also some people really like school and find that that's a motivator for them. So we wanna find ways of really incorporating that um, into treatment. Aside from kind of the group space, um, there's also gonna be individual therapy, which happens um, twice a week. There's family therapy, and there's also um, diet dietetic sessions and then psychiatric sessions as well. Um, so there really is kind of like round the clock support. Um, the way that Renfrew's residential programming is set up, which I know is different from some other folks, is we have more of a campus style setting. Yeah. And so there's one building that's the admissions building, and sometimes I think there are groups hosted there. Um, there's the residence building where folks are, you know, sleeping and hanging out when there's downtime. And then there's the main treatment building where there's meals, groups, and sessions. And so, you know, sometimes what I hear people say is like, well, I don't want to have to like stay locked in a building all day. Yeah. I think that is a nice aspect of Renfrew. I've talked yeah. to patients who've been to like every facility and, you know, some of them are, you know, one floor on this one building and you can go kind of stir crazy, you know? Exactly. And that's, that's really not the case at Renfrew. We know you need fresh air, yeah. you want to see the trees. And so, you know, you're not locked into one building, you are able to sort of move around campus and be able to get some fresh air. Um, and I think that that's like one of the really nice aspects of the programming. So you mentioned uh, meal support, which I think is like a huge reason a lot of people go to residential, right? Mm -hmm. At least from my end as a dietitian, it's like if they can't complete their meals, even with parents or whatever around, right. then they need that you know, quote unquote meal support. What does that mean when you say meal support? Cause I think that parents are like, well, how is it going to be different than me sitting with them? You know? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's different aspects of it, right? So depending on, you know, where someone is at in their residential treatment, um, there's kind of different levels of, you know, is the food being served to you? which is usually what happens when you're first kind of starting out and kind like of like that FBT sort of feeling. Yeah. Kind of familiarizing yourself. So perhaps like staff will plate your meal for you initially. And then the goal is for you to get more and more independence with that. So as you kind of progress through your treatment, you'll start plating your own meals. Um, you'll work with your dietitian to really learn like what are your nutritional needs? And then we want you to practice that, right? So being able to practice okay, what does a normal portion look like for me and for my body's needs? And so that's sort of what the, I'd say like behavioral aspect of the meal support looks like. Now, aside from kind of the plating, there's also the sitting with the food, the eating of the food. Right. And so yeah. when you are eating, um, there's going to be staff who are present, who are able to kind of pay attention to eating disorder behaviors that may come up. So when you do an assessment with us, we really try to find out, you know, are like, is the individual engage engaging in food rituals? Are there certain foods that they're avoiding? Are they eating in certain orders? And mm -hmm. so we're going to pay attention to that and then name that with you if it comes up to help you really 
challenge that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the model at Renfrew that we use is we really want to encourage um, approaching difficult emotions. So some treatment centers, they might use um, things like playing games, um, like, for example, during a meal to kind of avoid thinking about the food. We sort of take the opposite approach where we want you to be able to learn to sit with discomfort rather than avoid or distract from it. And so, you know, if you are struggling, we might ask you to use one of the tools that we teach you in UT to really ground into and anchor into um, your emotional experience with the food so that you can build your tolerance towards that. And you're also eating with like the other residents, right? Yep, that is correct. Yeah, yep. so meals um, meals and snacks are with other residents. Sometimes people might need like individual support, you know, as part of um, a food exposure that might happen in a one-on-one setting. Mm, okay, interesting. So the, the question for me that comes up a lot um, is, you know, is the congregate setting really going to be positive, right, for my child, you know, people are worried about, you know, learning other behaviors from other kids or, you know, other negatives that might come from being around a lot of other people with an eating disorder. Um, Could you speak to some of those like, you know, negatives that are true, but also like maybe some of the positives of being in the congregate setting and any of the research around that? Yeah. So, um, you know, when you initially sent me these questions, Julia, that's also what I was thinking about because people often do worry, like, is my loved one going to pick up eating disorder behaviors in this kind of congregate setting? And I think that's a valid concern at the same time. What I try to remind people is that eating disorder treatment is intended to help you manage the triggers of everyday life. So Mm -hmm. dieting disordered eating is so common, right? Especially in the U S culture, Um, And eating disorder behaviors are so widely talked about um, in social media platforms like TikTok, like on Instagram. So the triggers are there. Just like at your table with your family. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And so the triggers already exist in the environment, even if you haven't necessarily had the exposure to it yet. And so even if you, for example, see someone engage in an eating disorder behavior that you yourself have not yet used in this congregate setting, the goal is that we want to help you work through that trigger so that you're able to really navigate and prioritize your own recovery in the context of of these triggers so that when you're no longer in the residential setting, you know how to really apply those coping skills to the real real life. Right. So you're kind of saying, you know, yeah, there's going to be other people with eating disorders, but also that's true in real life. So we want to make sure you can handle it. Right. I think that if we didn't allow for those triggers to occur and help you learn how to navigate it, then we'd actually be doing you a disservice because you would be leaving residential and then those triggers could happen and you wouldn't necessarily know how to manage them. Mm -hmm. Do you see like that there are some people that it really doesn't work for, like just being in the group setting or are most people like able to succeed in that setting? I think that most people are are able to succeed. And I think this is one of the positives of the congregate setting because eating disorders are disorders of disconnection, right? So oftentimes the eating disorder leads to isolation or a disconnection from your family or or from your friends. Um, You may also feel misunderstood in your current social circles because the eating disorder can be really challenging for other people to understand and to navigate. 
Um, similarly, someone who already feels a sense of isolation or loneliness may turn to the eating disorder for comfort. So when you're in this congregate setting, we're offering the opportunity to replace that disconnection with connection to other people who can also understand um, what you're experiencing. So we're trying to support you to really build um, those healing relationships, modeling healthy communication, um, modeling conflict uh, like conflict navigation skills um, that can then also be applied when you return home. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I feel like something that's come up for me as an outpatient provider, right? Like, obviously I see some great things about like higher levels of care for my clients. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes I see that it didn't work for them. And, and one thing, and I wonder if you see this in residential or PHP or IOP, um, is like competition. Like I have clients who, when they were in, you know, PHP say they, they like were competing with the other people to like be the sickest almost. Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe that's part of their, their eating disorder. Um, but when they were an outpatient, they were able to succeed, but now I'm like, yeah, but they might have issues when they meet someone else with an eating disorder, right? Like you were just saying. Um, so I wonder, does that come up for you in, in any of the, the levels of care? Yeah. I mean, I think this really can come, come up in any level of care, right? Yeah. And so I think the work then as a therapist is really to explore what's the function of wanting to be the sickest, right? What, like, how has that been helpful to you, right? Within your family or within your friend group, what is that function and how can we support you to develop more like adaptive behaviors to have those needs met? So I think that while it doesn't feel good, it's, it gives really important clinical information. For sure. So you mentioned doing like that intake um, with patients earlier, and that's where, you know, the treatment team at Renfrew would decide, are they going to IOP, PHP or residential? Mm -hmm. that's yeah. Great. And so what are some of the like key, you know, flags you look for, for how to place patients in, in one of those levels? Yeah. So when someone reaches out to Renfrew, we first do a two hour biopsychosocial assessment. Um, that's also accompanied by a medical evaluation from your primary care provider. So one of the things that we're looking at in that assessment is what's the frequency and intensity of your eating disorder behaviors. So for example, if an individual is experiencing behaviors multiple times a day, every day, it's likely that we might encourage residential treatment because we need to meet those behaviors with equal, if not more force than the rate at which they're occurring to really interrupt them. Um, if you're experiencing the behaviors a few times a week, we may recommend intensive outpatient because again, if it's not happening every day, you might not need daily support or four five times a week support like PHP would offer. Um, okay. And what about like their health status? Does that go into it as well? Yeah. So the other thing that we look at is medical necessity. So if you're at risk for refeeding syndrome, which is when like if you have been restricting for a really long time and then if food is introduced too quickly into your body, um, the body can actually react really negatively. So if yeah. there is a risk of refeeding, then there's a higher likelihood we're going to recommend residential treatment because you're going to need that additional um, medical monitoring. 
Similarly, um, you know, if when you have your medical evaluation done, if there are labs that we're really concerned about, we may recommend day treatment so that you can have um, ongoing monitoring by our psychiatrist. And you mean like inpatient when you say day treatment? Um, no. So our day treatment is Monday through Friday. It's five times a week. It's about oh, six. The partial hours. Hospitalization. Yeah. Okay. The partial hospitalization program. I was like, I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I think the, the ter- both terms are used um, based yeah. on different programs. Um, but the other thing that I would remind people is that, you know, when we do this assessment, we're not just assessing the eating disorder. We're actually doing like a very thorough assessment to assess for depression, anxiety, substance Mm -hmm. use, trauma. And so when we make those recommendations, it's also taking into consideration one's overall mental health. So if the individual, for example, is struggling with substance use, well, oftentimes when we're working on reducing the eating disorder behaviors, we might see the substance use increase because the individual wants to cope with distress. So they turn- Exactly. To one of their other coping mechanisms. And so if you're struggling with other aspects of your mental health than just the eating disorder, that's also going to really inform the level of care and may merit having more treatment to, or a higher level of treatment to really target all of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing that I hear uh, currently or the last like two years, really, you know, again and again is just the long waiting lists you know, Mm -hmm. um, like they do that evaluation and they're told, okay, you're appropriate for residential, but eight weeks, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like six weeks, you know, and that feels so discouraging, I think to, um, clients or patients because they are like, well, they're telling me I need this, but I can't have it. And I'm just wondering, like, what are you seeing on the inside in terms of like in these programs as impacts from those really long waiting lists? Yeah, I mean, there's been a huge increase in the rates of eating disorders, and yes. as I'm sure you've seen, it. <laughs> yeah. and I've talked about this podcast a couple other times. It's it's literally wild. Like I went full time and hired two employees, who are now both going to be full time because there are that many people in our area. Yeah, I mean, I think the rates have increased. Also, the um, I think COVID has really allowed for more people to notice when a loved one is struggling with an eating disorder because you're yeah. around them so much. Mm-hmm. So there is a higher kind of need. I, actually, that's not the right phrase because I don't think there is a higher need. I think it's that, you know, we're seeing more and more people reach out for help. Um, and so kind of the programs that have existed were built to really you know, meet the need of the outreach at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, what's really contributing to these longer wait lists. Um, What I will say is that, you know, throughout the pandemic, I've noticed that Renfrew has had a shorter waiting list. Um, I think, you know, taking into account all of the COVID measures, we've usually been able to get people into treatment within about two weeks of them completing their assessment and completing their medical evaluation. And I'm wondering like with that shorter waitlist, if it's different than some of the treatment centers in Connecticut, you know, Renfrew isn't in Connecticut uh, as a residential facility. um, And the ones that are here do have those like six to eight week waiting lists. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've heard from them that they see like a higher acuity of patients, like you know, more sick than maybe they would be when they're coming in to treatment. Are you guys seeing that at all or, or not really? Um, 
I'm not sure I fully understood your question. Yeah, that's okay. Do you mind? (laughs) Yeah. uh, So basically, like, I work with Walden and Center for Discovery because they're right here all the time. And I've heard from dietitians and therapists there that, you know, they are seeing much sicker patients than they previously did. And one theory, at least that I've had and others have had in, in this issue is like maybe the waiting lists are leading to people being sicker or just like the inability to find an outpatient therapist or whatever it is, right? Like so hard to find treatment right now um, is making that happen. But I'm just wondering if you're seeing that too or, or no. Yeah, I think that is a lot of what we see. Um, you know, outpatient providers, like you said, um, are really busy and yeah. there's a huge Crazy. need and there isn't necessarily the kind of the providers who have availability to like really meet that need. Mm-hmm. And so I think oftentimes that leads to people kind of getting sicker because all of a sudden you need help. You're reaching out for help and then you're being told to help is not available at the time that you need it, which can, I think, emotionally really impact people, right? And perhaps bring up questions of like, well, am I deserving of help? Am I worthy of help? Yeah. 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 And I, I wonder like how many of the patients who go to like the virtual PHP or IOP programs, which are awesome. Like it's so great that they have them accessible from people's homes, but like potentially could have done outpatient, but there just wasn't outpatient available, you know, and those are more available. Um, Yeah. And so sometimes like in sort of that process of trying to find help, your eating disorder might worsen because that can also be really stressful. And so you might end up using the eating disorder to cope with the level of stress that you're feeling about trying to find help and and find providers. Mm -hmm. So at the very beginning, you mentioned like that you've only worked in the out um, in the virtual setting at Renfrew. Um, Have you seen it be effective with your patients or are there any types of patients that the virtual setting is just like not effective with? Yeah, I'd say for most folks, it appears to be effective. Um, Renfrew's actually been collecting data throughout the pandemic. And what we're seeing is that the virtual platform is as effective as our in-person programming um, was. I've seen that too, like not with everyone, but like with a lot of patients, I've seen it be super successful also because they're at home. So they don't deal with that like transition back home. Right. And I think the other thing is, right, when you are coming to a treatment center, um, you're going, whether that's, you know, to residential or whether you're going to PHP or IOP, you're previously, you were still coming to our site. So Mm -hmm. there was a level of, I think maybe coming to a space, that's not the space that you were necessarily facing those triggers in and providing that support in real time where you might be facing those struggles Um, or those triggers and supporting you to really manage that within your own environment. And so I think that's really one of the pros of the virtual space. Mm -hmm. Um, But the residential, obviously, like that is for people who like, it's not going to work to be at home, right? Yeah. And, and that really need a lot more support. Now, virtual programming is not necessarily for everyone, right? We have seen some folks who really struggle with that platform, struggle to build connection. And I think this, the reverse could also be said where maybe 
for some folks, in-person programming wasn't working, but virtual is really working, right? And so with some of these things, I'd encourage people to try, right? Try, and if it doesn't work, there will always be something else to try, but we have to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you just have to make a call in those evaluations, I guess, right? Exactly. Um, So I have lots of patients that like relapse and go back to treatment. And um, for some, it's great and others, it's not great. I'm just wondering from Renfrew's perspective, like, is there a indicator as like, this is worthwhile for a patient to repeat it? Or is there an indicator in the other way that like, maybe you need something totally different? Yeah. So I'd say that we really take it on a case by case basis, right? So repeating treatment can be helpful for folks um, Mm -hmm. because when you come back to care, you're not starting from the beginning. You're trying again with more knowledge, more skills um, than you previously had. And your eating disorder may also not be the same. So sometimes people utilize different kinds of eating disorder behaviors at different points in their eating disorder. And so what treatment looked like the first time might look different from the next time. Um, We might be trying to really stabilize and target different kinds of behaviors. Um, But if you are noticing that, you know, relapse is repeated, um, then it might be worth exploring if that program is the right fit for you, right? It might be, for example, time to try a new program or even thinking about the virtual versus the in-person, right? Right. So maybe if all you've been trying is in-person, maybe it's time to try virtual so that we can really help you navigate those triggers in real time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if we are concerned about someone um, coming back to us repeatedly, and if we're really not sure if this is working, we're often having conversations with the individual and with the family to really talk through, okay, what might be going on here that um, is leading to kind of the repeated um, relapses and and need for residential. Sometimes um, there are secondary gains where people might feel like um, the only way to receive care or um, to receive like attention from the people in their life is to keep being sick. And so if that's happening, we want to name it, talk about it and help you kind of work through that. I'm so glad you said that because I've seen for people it almost like once they've been to treatment and they're over like the fear of going to a higher level of care, whether that's, you know, intensive outpatient, you know, the PHP or um, residential, they can kind of use it as an escape, right? From normal life. Um, And that's definitely a behavior (laughs) as well. Right. That's avoidance, which is the exact opposite of what we want to encourage in treatment. And so um, those are conversations that we try to have really intentionally when someone is returning to us. And, you know, we had talked about before we started um, recording that, you know, this might apply to all levels of care, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on like repeating any level of care, whether that's like outpatient with the same provider or intensive outpatient or, or a PHP. I think my thoughts kind of remain the same, right? Because even if it's not residential, for example, that you would be returning to, there can be a sense of safety in returning to a program that feels familiar, right? And so if it feels familiar, and for example, if you're going through a transition in your life, um, 
that might lead to like wanting to return to RENF or return to any level of programming. Um, and again, this is where we try to have those very intentional conversations. And if it feels like Renfrew's model and um, isn't the right fit for what that individual needs, then we're not going to encourage returning because we want to help you recover. We don't yeah. want to keep you stuck in the cycle of the eating disorder. Yeah. So if we're seeing that this model really isn't working for you, we will refer you to other programs that, you know, will have a different approach that may end up be, uh, being a better fit. Mm-hmm. And I see that too, with like therapists and dietitians, you know, when, when they feel like they're not making progress, I've had many therapist colleagues and I've done it myself, um, say things like, you know, I I don't think you're making progress with me. You know, maybe this other person is worth trying, um, if they've done everything, you know, exactly. And we will often, yeah. yeah. And we often do that within our own treatment too, where, you know, if you are returning, we might assign you to a different treatment team to see if maybe working with different providers this time around could be helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it's so, it's so different from like a medication, right? Like, right. Just, like, <laughs> like, like, it's like one thing, if you take Zoloft and it doesn't work or it does work, but it's like a totally different thing. If you're like, have a particular therapist, like their personality and style and everything like is so different. Yeah. I try to always explain that to parents when they're like, why isn't my kid working with you? Like, why don't, why did you put them with a different dietitian or whatever? And I'm like, well, you know, it's not like dietitian like fixes everything, you know, it's different types of dietitians and different, different styles. Right. And sometimes we just have to try different things to really figure out what's going to work and what's going to stick. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, like, because you've probably talked to lots of parents, right? Yes. Either <laughs> when a kid is at treatment and also like before they come and after, mm-hmm. what advice, like looking back on your patient's experiences and families you've worked with, would you want to give to a parent considering sending their child to run free? Yeah. Um, one of the first things I would say is like, it's okay to ask for information. Um, You know, Renfrew offers um, virtual tours of our programming. Like there, there are some videos on YouTube. And so that's a really great place to find information. But then if you have follow-up questions about what is programming like, um, you can totally ask, right? Like you are within your rights as someone who would be receiving a service to really know what your signing up for what you're signing your child up for. And I'd encourage you to, you know, read about the programming to watch those videos because it can help build familiarity, right? So if you are going to be driving your child to run through and you have no idea what the campus looks like or what the meal rooms look like, et cetera, that can really build up a lot of the anxiety of sending your child to treatment or your child's own anxiety. But if you're able to really take those virtual tours, read about the programming before you come, I think it will kind of help everyone settle into that a little bit more. And then I think the second biggest piece of advice I have is really ensuring that you have your own support. Being a caregiver for someone who's struggling with an eating disorder is really difficult. And you need support just as much as your child does. And so, you know, whether that support looks like 
you know, reaching out to friends and family, whether that means seeing your own therapist or attending a group um, for supporters. There are tons of groups out there for supporters specifically. Having that is going to give you a, a, a better bandwidth to support your own child and your family in this process. Yeah, that's like exactly why I created all of my like parent programming because I just felt like oh man, like <laughs> the kid can do all this work, but if there isn't the support at home or the parents just don't know, you know, what's going on and they're not in all these sessions every week or mm-hmm. they're not the one going to residential, then how are they supposed to, you know, help them? Exactly. Exactly. And it can be hard to know what questions to ask, right. Or when to ask them. Um, because some of this is like, you sort of learn as you're going along. Um, And it's okay to ask questions throughout the process, right? So like, as you're noticing things in your child's treatment, it's appropriate to ask the treatment team, like, hey, can you tell me a little bit more about this? Or can you help me understand the rationale for this? Um, The treatment team is gonna wanna protect your child's privacy and confidentiality where it's appropriate to do so. And if there's a question where they feel like it really crosses that boundary, they will share that with you, but you are still able to ask. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Fatima. This was awesome having you on. Is there any, you know, last thoughts or things you want to share before we wrap up? Um, That if your child or someone that you love is um, struggling with an eating disorder, or if you think they might be, but you're not really sure, I'd encourage you to reach out to Renfrew um, to schedule an assessment and to get a better understanding of their needs. Um, Our assessments are free because we really want you to be able to understand what your child and your family needs and to understand those recommendations before you make any decisions about treatment. Um, So you can reach out to us at 1-800-RENFREW or you can visit us at renfrewcenter.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. And the last question I ask every um, guest is what's your favorite food? Ooh, I love cookies. (laughs) (laughs) Man, any particular type of cookie? Chocolate chip cookies. I have actually a t-shirt that's (laughs) like cookies are my crunches (laughs) (laughs) because I love cookies. Um, They're my favorite. Yeah. And like homemade cookies are so much better. Yes. My husband just got all these Girl Scout cookies from a a Girl Scout that lives across the street and you know, they're okay, but they're nothing compared to like a homemade chocolate chip cookie. Yes, absolutely. What's your favorite cookie? Oh, um, I mean, I love chocolate chip cookies and like I put vanilla pudding in them and they stay soft for like days and days. I used to mail them like all over the place to people, mostly my brothers. Um, and they would like stay good in the mail. Yeah. Highly recommend. Ooh, that sounds delicious. One of my favorite recipes is from a college professor. Um, and she makes these chocolate oatmeal cookies, mm-hmm. um, that chocolate chip oatmeal cookies that are my absolute favorites as my graduation gift from college. She gave me her recipe. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it's my cool. absolute favorite one. <laughs> get in the kitchen um cool well thank you so much and have a great rest of your day and week thank you thank you so much 